welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Moya Andrews. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Perry Metz, who is the general manager of WFIU and WTIU. Perry, thank you for being with us today. I always associate you so closely with WFIU and WTIU, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what happened in the development of the stations before you came. Well, quite a bit, obviously. Uh, Originally, it was a radio station. The university, as many educators around the country, thought that radio would change education, that it would be a wonderful new way to communicate with Mm -hmm. students and to teach. But quickly, people learned that sitting around a radio and listening to a distant scholar was not necessarily going to accomplish that. But universities got into the business of having a campus radio station. And then when public radio came along in the early 70s, WFIU was one of the 90 charter members of NPR. Now there are hundreds of stations, but the university signed on early. Some of the early work here was done. Don Fetterson was an early director of radio TV services. He and Herb Seltz were pioneers. I think feeling their way along with a new medium for university communities and for all of southern Indiana. As that developed, television came on and the university decided to get into that business too. It was funny because they followed the same pattern. People thought, this is a fabulous way to communicate and we'll be able to teach Mm. early distance Mm. education. But again, what they learned was that you can be a terrific classroom teacher, but you don't necessarily translate to the camera. And so those early ideas that the sunrise semester would bring thousands of new enrollees didn't actually pan out. And so the institution found itself with a radio and television station. And that's when Bill Kroll, who was here as a, originally as a film editor back when everything was on film, uh, became the general manager and started offering more things for the community and for all of southern Indiana. Bill was very knowledgeable and particularly adept at new equipment. He always knew what the latest thing was and made sure that the station was current. When he retired, Don Augustino, who had been chair of the academic department of telecommunications, became the director. And Don really knew the institution well, was a respected faculty member, and helped increase the connections that the stations had with faculty and academic departments. So it's been a progression, but because broadcasting changes so much as new technologies come on board, it's always been a leader, I think, in adopting new technologies to serve the community better. Well, why do you think public broadcasting has survived? I think it's a lot due to the unique programming that it provides on radio and television. For years, it was generally accepted in the country that PBS and NPR offered something that wasn't available elsewhere. But when cable exploded 
And mm. people said, oh, now you have 500 channels. You don't need, for example, public television anymore because it's provided elsewhere. The best answer I ever heard for that is given by Paula Kerger, the terrific president of PBS. She did what I did this morning, which was to pick up the program schedule for the night that we're recording this program. And I looked up what is playing tonight on the Arts and Entertainment Network. It's a marathon of police patrols. And then I looked at the History Channel. It's a marathon called Ancient Aliens. And the Learning Channel is playing a three-part episode called 90 Day Fiancé. Oh, my goodness. Not arts and entertainment, history, or learning. No. And her point was that, yes, those may be the names, but they're not really providing the art, the history, the culture that people hoped they would. And so there is a continuing place for PBS and NPR. PBS has gone after those categories. NPR has devoted itself to news. And I think those are both still highly valuable and sought after by people looking for something that they can't get elsewhere. Now, you have always had a very loyal set of listeners. And the music programs have always been highly regarded in this area. Do you remember the time when they changed the time of the opera? <laughs> Can you remember that? And what did you learn from that experience in the way that the fans responded? It was a very educational process. For any of uh, people listening who don't remember, we took the Metropolitan Opera off the air on Saturdays. Uh, we knew from surveys that listening drops naturally on Saturday afternoons. But ours dropped a lot because people were not listening to the opera. And so uh, we thought that we could substitute programs that would have greater appeal. That may or may not have happened because, first, there was a swift and negative reaction mm, from listeners wow. and members. They called. They wrote. They came to the station. They came to the advisory board meeting, all to say that they really wanted the opera to be part of the Metropolitan Opera, to be part of the schedule. And one of the most interesting letters came from a person who wrote that he did not listen to the Metropolitan Opera himself, but that it was absolutely part of what he expected his public radio station to provide for the community. And then he talked eloquently about the range of interests that he thought public radio should provide. And I thought that was very interesting. It seemed to capture in one place the sentiments of a lot of people mm. in addition to those who were big fans. And so, of course, we did bring back the Metropolitan. Over the years, you've been very responsive to your base of listeners. And also, I think you regularly consult with your advisory committees for each station in order to take the pulse of the listeners, is that right? That's an interesting point because as an institutional licensee owned by IU, we're not required to have community advisory boards, but we always have, believing that there is value in public discussion, in hearing different points of view, and 
in bringing in ideas that the station staff itself may not yet have heard or thought about. Sometimes the conversations are very much what we've been talking about. Other times they take on a different cast, and that's helpful. Even when you hear things that you don't want to hear, it does give you a window into what viewers, listeners, and members are thinking. Well, you've been doing this for 16 years. So have you been the one with the longest tenure as the general manager? I may be. Certainly not the longest tenure at the station. We benefited, I think, from a number of people who've been with the station for a long period of time. The university presents through these stations a face of the university for the surrounding community. Who do you report to within the university? The provost, uh, Lauren Robel, uh, has been very supportive of the stations. And uh, I think that academic connection has been critical in helping us maintain ties with academic departments and be a functioning academic support unit. And what I mean by that is, at least during my tenure, we have not operated as a shill for the university. If we were to adopt an IU is great spirit Mm. all the time we broadcast, the listeners and viewers would quickly pick up on that and disregard it. It would squander, I think, the reputation that the stations have. Instead, we have looked for substantive connections. By that, I mean when the news reporters are doing stories, there may be a faculty expert in that area. It's far more impressive to hear a faculty member talk about how their lifelong research bears on this public issue and then gives a comment, you see in action the value of higher education, of research, of teaching in a way that a commercial or a rah-rah spot uh, never would convey. Similarly, we work with academic departments to make videos or podcasts that serve the academic mission. Some of this goes on behind the scenes and is never broadcast, but it's part of what we do as a total radio and television service. We serve Southern Indiana, but we also serve IU. Now, what kinds of things do you do to give students practical experience? One of the things that I emphasized when I came was that we wanted to provide as many opportunities for students to work at the stations as we could. Uh, I visited another Big Ten station, very successful. I admire the work they do. They have a, a beautiful, much nicer building, but it's at some remove from the campus, and I spent the whole day there, and I never saw a student. Oh, what a shame. You never see that in this operation. We have students working in almost every department. Some volunteer, some work for credit, and about 80 a year are paid. The big advantage is that if you're interested in any form of media, here is a professional operation where you can come and work, get paid, get experience, and develop the kind of portfolio 
that really makes you marketable when you graduate and you're looking for a job. And I think that that combination is a terrific opportunity for students. One thing that we've just done with the help of Ken Beckley and Larry Alt, two uh, alums who went on to very successful media careers, they came back and helped us raise money to endow working students in media positions. So this means permanently we will have positions for students to earn above the going rate in professional capacities and do what Ken and Larry did to help work themselves through school. That's a wonderful story that they are giving back and helping with a program similar to a program they were involved with as students. It was very generous because both Ken and Larry recognized that when they went through school, it was easier to earn your way. The cost at that time versus what you could earn, you could earn a good portion of it. Today, at seven, eight, nine dollars an hour, it's very difficult to do that. These working student internships will pay this year $12 an hour, and in future years that will go up with inflation. And it gives students a healthy financial boost, mm. but it really serves their training purposes in a way that complements the classroom. listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Moya Andrews. Our guest today is Perry Metz, who for 16 years has been the general manager of WFIU and WTIU. I'd like to hear a little more about your investment in local and state news. This has been a very important aspect of your leadership in recent years. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a bit about that? When I first became involved with the stations, I was taking a class as an undergraduate, and I worked in the news department. It was run by Margaret Joseph, who was the news director. Margaret worked alone, and she did, she, everything. She did everything. She relied on some student help, but she did it all by herself. And that might have been realistic in a day when there were hundreds of reporters everywhere combing the state. But it's certainly not true today. Mm. We've seen with shrinking newspapers and with television turning its news attention to fire, murders, and police reports, there's less and less reporting available to make the American democracy work. If you're a citizen in southern Indiana in a rural town and you're trying to make up your mind about who to vote for in a state race or what the state should do, where do you get your information? 25 years ago, in the basement of the state house, every carol was filled with reporters from every newspaper in the state. Today, it's incredible, the number of vacancies. Most newspapers have given that up, and they rely on one AP reporter. There just isn't the presence. And so we reasoned... 10 years ago that we had 
a television news department and a radio news department, a couple people in each place. That's not much. So we combined them, called it a converged newsroom, that would provide audio coverage, video coverage, and online. And I think from a public broadcaster standpoint, we were very early to that game. It took some work and some growing pains, but now we have the largest public newsroom in the state. And these reporters, in concert with a statewide effort that we have with 10 other stations that we've partnered with in Indiana, we have coverage on Indiana environment, education, business, transportation, workforce development, medicine and health, and government, along with local stories. WFIU and TIU have one of the few reporters in the country who concentrates on rural news in smaller towns where typically they don't see a reporter unless there's been a murder or kidnapping Mm -hmm. in the area. But he's there talking about the issues that matter in these smaller communities, things ranging from brain drain, young people growing up and moving away, to the opioid crisis, to issues of local governance. So what I think we're trying to do, and and I'd say we've made good progress, but we're only halfway there, is to provide the kind of local and regional news that people used to have a lot of sources for. But now, when they turn to the internet, they can get a lot that's national, Mm. but they don't have as much to see in the state and in southern Indiana. Now, what about funding for all of this? (laughs) This must be an expensive operation, and the university obviously funds you to some extent. And, of course, we all know about your regular fund drives. (laughs) But this must be a problem cobbling together enough resources to do the kind of varied things that you've described. Our general manager is responsible for cobbling together the resources. And you're right. The university has been generous and consistent with us. But for any of you who are listening and have wondered about just how much, the university provides about 38% of our annual budget. That is terrific, and I'm very grateful for it. But that means we're looking to raise 62% every single year. And we do that through a combination of federal grants some modest support from the state, corporate underwriting, foundation gifts, and, of course, individual members. And people have been pretty generous. We have, in over 16 years, I think 15 of the 16, we saw increased membership income. Eva Zagorski has been our membership director since before I got here. She knows the membership. She knows the systems that you use to communicate with people. And it's really benefited both the stations by giving them a consistency of funding that not every station has. Today, as we're talking, I just read that there is a major upheaval in Nevada public radio because they have run a deficit for five of the last seven years. Mm. And uh, they're deep in debt. Our stations are not. Both stations are healthy. I say that quietly, because I would never want people to think that that's a reason not to give. 
when people do make an investment, we're able to do more that matters, and we can expand our news operation. Right now, we're five days a week. We hope to move to seven days a week in the next 12 months. And That will take money. That always takes money. We're continuing to look. We don't want members to shoulder the full cost, and we're looking to other sources. We try to earn as much money as we can for production work, but it's been a, a puzzle that every year you must figure out how to put together. And my view has been we want to put it together in a way that builds sequentially, year in and year out, not a boom and bust. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are stations that are successful who will expand dramatically with an infusion of money and then let a bunch of people go two years later and then repeat the cycle. I don't know that that creates an environment where you do your best work. Knowing that the funding is consistent and that we can promise people that we're able to sustain what we start seems to me a more persuasive case for why people should invest. It won't be a flash in the pan. And so we have grown this news operation steadily every year rather than one dramatic Mm. increase. You have incredible employees at both of these stations. And I'm sure they don't earn the kind of money in this kind of position that they could earn in the real world. But I have always been so impressed by the caliber of people that you have working at both WFIU and WTIU. Does the university pay a lot of those salaries? 38%. Oh, 38%. Uh, That's very low. They do, and we're appreciative of that. But you're right. The salaries are not high. And last year, a group of employees wrote to me to outline uh, why they thought their salaries in their department were behind those of their peers. So we went to Human Resources at IU, and they agreed to do a study of comparable stations. And they discovered that, yes, we were behind, not seriously, but we were behind. And so we were able to raise those salaries. What I mean by that is the university gave us permission. We still had to come up with the money. Mm. So we've made progress But I would still say I would rather that instead of being in the midpoint, I I would rather be closer to the top to help keep some of these very good people. Well, it must be a struggle always because talented people can so easily be picked off by other institutions or by other companies. I want to know a little bit about the programming and how that happens because you have a lot of different types of programs. And I understand the need for variety, but you seem to have a lot of variety in your offerings. It's a goal. In fact, I got a a letter of complaint yesterday from a person who uh, watches a lot of television, a lot of public television, excoriating us for some of our choices. His view was that we wasted a lot of time on children's programs, and on things he was not interested in. Mm -hmm. He did concede there were some things he was interested in. In a way, I take the criticism, but it's also a compliment. We do try to provide things to all segments of the community. So, for example, 
we were in the first group of stations that adopted and began broadcasting a couple years ago a new PBS channel that is 24-7 children's programming of the mm. high-quality educational programming that PBS has always offered for children. The reason was fascinating, and I would not have predicted this if you had asked me in advance. A study of American children found that contrary to what we thought, which was the idea that kids watched early in the morning and then when they came home from school, that many children were watching television alone in the evenings at 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. Oh, my goodness, that's late. And particularly in homes of poverty. Mm. And so what did they have to choose from? Really content that was not meant for children. And so PBS stepped forward with this offering that is available free over the air and that we broadcast as one of our five channels. I think it's a terrific public service across the country, and I was very proud of PBS for stepping up to do that. Similarly, uh, we offer a lot of drama on television. Mm. We offer how-to programs, cooking programs, history, culture, art, things that you just don't see on a regular basis mm. on other channels. And that's similar on radio. We're a bit of a dinosaur as a radio station because about half our hours are classical and jazz music and half talk and news. Many stations around the country abandoned classical music years ago because there's more money in talk and information. And it's quite possible that we could have made more money doing that as well. But your fans from the music school would have been very upset. Well, I'd like more of those fans to become members. But, <laughs> but yes, I take your point. And the reason we didn't do it was that when you operate a radio station in the shadow of one of the great music schools of the world, it would be foolish not to have that as a key part of your programming. It's part of the nature of the Bloomington campus, and it's what we should be offering. I'm happy to say that we still command a good audience and that WFIU is the most listened to radio station in Monroe County, which is terrific, especially considering our mix of programs. listening to Profiles on WFIU, and our guest today is Perry Metz, who is retiring after 16 years as general manager of the two stations. Perry, I want you to tell me a little bit about the staffing of the stations. Obviously, you need a lot of people. About how many do you employ? Well, it's a larger operation than many people think. We have 80 full-time employees and about that many part-time. A number of students work here, and it takes a lot to put that together. Right now, John Bailey is our operations director on radio. John is a wonderful resource for public radio nationwide. He 
keeps his eye open for developments and knows a lot about the people and the operations around the country. Brent Molnar is our operations director on television, and Brent has been programming the stations for years and has almost an encyclopedic knowledge of what PBS has offered for the last 20 years, which is a uh, terrific it resource. Is extraordinary. And so we're able to uh, supplement with the regular schedule with what Brent and John find from around the country. And I think it makes for a pretty uh, interesting program schedule with a, a lot for everyone. Now, do most of the people who you interview or who volunteer, are most of these people associated with IU? No. I'd say that some, as I mentioned earlier, a faculty expert is obvious, but sometimes we'll take an expert from Purdue or from Ball State. Even from Purdue? Even from Purdue. (laughs) In fact, I tell people not to be afraid to mention other universities because that's part of the state and we want to reflect that. Our offerings often travel the state. Journey Indiana is our travel program visiting all corners of Indiana. And in the course of that, of course, you're going to run into other universities. We should never be afraid to give credit where credit is due. I believe we offer more and do it better, but they may feel the same way and they should hear themselves on our stations. Before you joined WFIU-WTIU as general manager, You had some other very important roles in the administration at IU. But maybe we should start at the beginning. Why did you come to IU? You're a Kentucky boy. (laughs) Yes, I grew up in Louisville, and I I came to the Bloomington campus to study journalism. And I double majored in political science and journalism. It was a great experience. Then I uh, I had a fellowship in Washington, D.C. I worked on Capitol Hill learned a lot about how government actually works, some of it very heartening, some of it a little disturbing, and came back to campus to take a job with Bob O'Neill, who was the head of the campus at that time. He'd been looking for an assistant, and the search committee approved me, and so I went to work for Bob. Oh, isn't that interesting? I didn't know you started out with Bob. I always associate you with Ken. Ken Gross-Lewis, because you were on his team for many years. I worked with Ken for over 20 years every day, started as an assistant to the vice president and finished as associate vice president of the Bloomington campus. And in that role, I probably worked with every department on campus. I was the person who often had to say, hello, I'm from Bryan Hall and I'm here to help you. And people (laughs) greeted that with varying levels of skepticism. (laughs) Uh, But if you know you're going to be here for a while, you want to leave a good taste behind. And uh, I made a lot of friends in that work and really enjoyed it. Well, you are certainly well known on the campus. And I wonder whether or not you would tell us a few of your memorable moments when you were working for Ken Gross-Lewis. I heard you speak at his memorial, and some of the stories you told were so funny. But is there anything that's suitable for this occasion? Uh, Well, Ken had a great sense of humor, and I spoke about those uh, situations. But some of the other things that I remember, Ken used to uh, make fun of me because I read 
the trade papers on higher education. Uh, he found that amusing because he thought that often it was recycled news and not of particular value. But one day in the early 80s, I read an article about Syracuse University and a program they called Project Advance. It was a groundbreaking effort to offer college-level courses in high schools for what's known as dual credit. And I was so intrigued by it. At that time, there was great concern on the campus that the university faculty had lost touch with the high school teachers of Indiana. And I thought, what a way to correct that. You could bring high school teachers to the campus to spend a week or two working with college faculty, and then they could go back into their high schools and offer, in effect, freshman-level classes that students could earn both high school and college credit for. I sent someone to Syracuse for several days to study. They were very generous with their time, and we copied their program. This has grown into the Advanced College Project. Oh, my, I had no idea you were responsible for that, but that's been a fantastic program. It has served, I think, more than half a million students in its time. Hundreds of high schools now participate, and dual credit has become something known to every student. But in 1982, it was a very questionable idea. And we actually had to appear before the State Board of Education to convince them that this could be done in a responsible way and that we would provide the kind of evaluation mm. afterward to see that the students were learning equivalent to what they would learn in a college class. And in many cases, they actually learned a little bit more. Yes, it's uh, a very rigorous program. And so it expanded. We started with uh, English composition and basic math, but expanded into history and psychology and chemistry. And it really was a great experience, I think, for the teachers and the faculty mm. who developed a natural respect for each other because they found both sides more approachable than they had imagined. They enjoyed the interaction with people in their field. Mm. And it, I believe, also helped raise the level of high school education. Now, what we didn't anticipate was that 40 years later, it would mean so many students would come to campus with as much as a year or a year and a half of college already completed. So it cuts into your profits now. <laughs> yes, it does. And that's a problem that the College of Arts and Sciences has had to wrestle with. But I think that students and families have really appreciated this. And it was an interesting project that came out of reading the trade papers. And keeping up to date with what other people are doing. Now, you did some other very significant things, such as accreditation, when you worked in the uh, vice chancellor. In those mm -hmm. days, it was the vice chancellor's office. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it's most unusual to have someone who's not a faculty member in charge of accreditation. Yes, I was the first, maybe the only. And uh, about a week after it was announced that I would be uh, running our self-study, a senior faculty member wrote an impassioned letter to my boss saying that it simply was a bad idea, that a non-faculty member couldn't get the nuance, uh, wouldn't understand it enough, and that he was diametrically opposed. 
Well, that made me work harder, and I worked pretty closely with content specialists in each of the areas, also with the North Central staff. That was a fascinating experience because if you do as I did, I asked to see uh, recent Big Ten self-studies, and I found they were all between five and 600 pages. Mm. And I said, is that really necessary for an established research institution? And the uh, associate director of North Central said, actually, he said, no, it isn't. But he said, that's what most of them are. He said, if you want to write something more concise, he said, I would welcome that. So we did. We wrote a much more concise and readable document. And I'm happy to say that that senior faculty member later became a close friend and wrote a follow-up letter saying that uh, it had turned out very well and that he was proud of the document. So it was a a good feeling of accomplishment, but also a terrific way to learn about the institution. Oh, about the institution. Indeed, indeed. And of course, that's one of the reasons, these kinds of projects that you did are one of the reasons that you're so well known in every department <laughs> on this campus. And you also had some fun with Legionnaire's disease, didn't you? <laughs> people may not remember there was a, a period of time when uh, a couple of people who had stayed in the Indiana Memorial Union got sick and died. And there was great concern because no mm-hmm. one knew they were pneumonia-like symptoms, symptoms but They couldn't treat it, and they weren't sure uh, at that time Legionnaires was not widely known. And so uh, I remember in particular President John Ryan called a midnight meeting. He wanted to talk about what we were going to do. Some people thought we should close the union. Someone suggested that Ryan move into the union as a show of support. And the state board of health, the head of the board of health, spent a lot of time on campus. It was very tense because there was this sense that something was wrong, but nobody knew what it was. Mm. And it was some weeks, months that passed before they determined, yes, it was Legionnaire's disease. It mirrored something that had happened in a Philadelphia hotel. And then eventually they found the culprit, which was the cooling tower, which is where Legionnaire's bacteria often develop. And so eventually the problem was solved, but uh, it was a very tense time for the university. And then there was a blizzard at one point (laughs) that you presided over. Ironically, I was living for a year in an apartment in the Indiana Memorial Union. And so when the blizzard hit, I looked out, I saw the blizzard conditions, and I went back to bed figuring the campus is closed, which it was. But 20 minutes later, the phone rang. It was Bob O'Neill, the head of the campus, who knew I lived a few steps away in the union building. And he said, listen, I'm over here at the office and I really need you here. So I go over, I drag myself out of bed and trudge through the blizzard. And there were just four or five of us working in the whole institution that day because he had to then figure out how long we would be closed for, what Mm arrangements would be made, and it was a historical time in the campus, I think one of the first times the campus ever closed.
You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Moya Andrews, and our guest today is Perry Metz, who is retiring as general manager of WFIU and WTIU after 16 years. How did this all start? I mean, your father, wasn't he in communications? Tell me a little bit about your father. My father was in radio and television with the CBS affiliate in Louisville for 60 years, which is a tremendous run. Very unusual to be at the same stations in the same market and last for 60 years. For 35 years, he ran one of the country's first call-in radio programs. Unlike today, where they're all opinion-driven, people could listen to him for 35 years. They didn't know what his opinions were. To him, the stars of the show were the callers and sometimes the guests, but he didn't know who would be on the line. And so at that time, they had a seven-second delay in case somebody uttered profanities, probably used only a couple of times in 35 years. And he treated people with respect. They called sometimes highly educated people, other times no education at all. And they called from all over the country because it was a 50,000-watt clear channel station. So it reached... 40 states and Canada was on in the evening. And I guess a different time because he became friendly with people around the country. I remember a family in Montreal used to call uh, every six weeks or so and eventually invited us to come visit, and we did. I had a wonderful time touring around Montreal with a, a family that really knew the place. And so I grew up around a radio yes, and television station. you grew station. up around a station. No wonder you're so good at it. <laughs> well, You've been doing it. it all your life or knowing about it all your life. We talked about it a lot as I grew up, and he was a great role model. And you were an only child. Yes, just me, uh, which has its disadvantages, but it allowed me to spend a lot of time at the stations, which I got a kick out of. Moya, well, if we have a minute, I, I did want to tell you one other story. yes. Everybody knows in Indiana, they have seen at one time or another the movie Breaking Away, which uh, gave this idyllic and gorgeous view of Indiana University. I happened to have been here when that was made, and that has never really been documented, what happened behind the scenes. Oh, I would love you to tell us now. Peter Yates, a director, came to town with no entourage and said he wanted to make a movie. So he made the rounds of various administrators talking about this. And as it happened, nobody seemed to know who he was. He just had his introduction, uh, but people had never heard of him. So he was trying to get some traction. The only two people who took him seriously were Frank McCloskey, who was mayor of Bloomington, and Bill Armstrong, who was head of of the IU Foundation. Everybody else was very skeptical and dismissive. And at one point, the vice president for university relations told Yates, listen, buddy, if you think you're going to make a movie here, you're not doing it without my permission, Mm. and I have to have script approval. So give me the script. And Yates said, well, I only have one copy. I suppose I could give it to you. He said, fine. Give it to me, I'll read it. So the VP took it home, and next morning he uh, 
called Jim Green and me into his office, and he threw the script on the table, laughed derisively, and said, this is nothing but modern-day Andy Hardy, the old Mickey Rooney Mm -hmm. movies that were very wholesome and corny. And he said, it's modern-day Andy Hardy. No one will come see it. Well, of course, he turned out to be wrong, but the movie uh, was made largely because people simply agreed to go along with it. The university didn't ask for much in return. They made a very small contribution to scholarships, no ownership or return to the institution. And when the movie was completed, I'm not sure people really thought it would amount to anything. I had read the script, and I confess that I didn't see the full charm of it when I did. I thought it was good, but I I didn't think it was that good. And when I saw the movie, I really thought he had pulled it Mm, all off mm. tremendously. It became the iconic view of college. And for years afterward, people would come visit and say, this is what I thought college would look like or what I knew I had to see this beautiful campus. And I remember watching it in a Bloomington theater, as did many residents. And when you did in those days, you would hear people in the audience say, oh, that's my street. Or, oh, that's my cousin. That, I was wearing that. That's, And they each recognized not only scenes of beauty, but he ran certain footage from several angles to make a street look longer than it really was. And so people were very taken with it for the little details. But it was a, a heartwarming story about aspiration, dreams, and uh, how even a parent who had never been anywhere might share the same dreams that her son had. I thought it was a charming picture. Oh, and that's a charming story to hear that that's how it all started and that people were not wildly enthusiastic at all. No, in fact, the HT uh, didn't give it a very good review. Truly. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Well, you have really had a very interesting and wonderful career, many, many facets. Do you have any other stories that you'd like to tell us before we conclude our interview? Well, before we talked, you asked me who were my mentors. Yes. And I thought about that because there were a number of them, some who are still around. I thought of Maynard Thompson, who was a longtime uh, budget dean for the campus. And I think from him, I learned a lot about patience and intellect. It was somebody who was often the most informed person in the room, but never had to show that to people, never had to pound it on them. He was very patient and listened a lot. As I've gotten older, contrary to this last hour, I've tried to spend less time talking and more time listening, which I think I learned from him. Myrtle Scott was an education professor, and she and Henry Remack, a Germanic studies professor, both had such strong moral compasses. And as I interacted with them and became friendly with them over the years, I learned a lot about holding on to your values even when the tide was pushing against you. And I think, too, of Don Warren, a retired dean of education, whom I would describe as a great 
citizen of the campus, even though he was a tireless advocate for the School of Education, he really understood and cared about the welfare of the whole institution. And that became a model for me, that I could be passionate about my area, but also have a deep stake in the welfare of the place. And I I think maybe I credit uh, the sense of place to Ken Gross-Lewis, who always had a good sense of how the institution had developed, uh, where it had strayed, and how it got back on the right path. It was uh, an understanding and appreciation of place in the way that uh, English professor and author Scott Russell Sanders writes so eloquently about that uh, appreciation and in-depth knowledge of where you are uh, makes a big difference in how you conduct yourself. It's very interesting to hear you talk about people that you learned things from amongst the early administrators that you worked with. And I'm sure the listeners will also recognize that on this campus, we had some very skilled administrators Mm. during the years that you were coming up. Perry, what advice do you have for your successor, whoever he or she may be? Of course, after 16 years, you know that there will be value in a new way of looking at things, a new set of eyes, and we should all welcome that. But for me, the question is, how can public broadcasting survive? How can it thrive 10 and 20 years from now? My view is that for the last 40, 50 years, public stations had sort of a monopoly. If you wanted NPR or PBS content, you had to get it from your local station. Maybe you didn't join, but that's where you went to get it. Now, with the change in technology, it's getting easier and easier to pick up a program on your laptop or your cell phone and go directly to the producer. There is no longer a monopoly that the local franchise gives you. So what will make these stations and similar ones around the country survive? Why do you need them 10 years from now? I believe the answer to that is that the stations have to provide high-quality local and regional content that people can't get anywhere else. Even if they can get the national content in other ways, they will still want their local stations if they're adding value to the game. And by that I mean, does WFIU provide comprehensive, compelling jazz programming like Just You and Me or Afterglow in a way that connects with the audience and that showcases local talent? Mm, mm. Uh, Does classical music provide both the music and the stories behind the music and the performers? If there is news that is about Monroe County, about Brown County, about Orange County, then that's something you still want to be part of and you want to support. And it's unique. It is. And that's the secret to success. The stations that have relied for 40 years on being a pass-through of the national may have occasional breakout hits, which are wonderful, but that's not 
survival. That's not thriving into the future because you're no longer a critical need. Similarly, with television, which is much more expensive to produce, are you adding documentaries about the great figures of Indiana history, the art and culture of Indiana? If you are, then people still have a reason to come to you. We have the Friday Zone for 20 years, one of the last locally produced children's programs in the country. It's hands-on for children in K through 2, and it's tied directly to state educational standards, although I think the program is fun enough that kids have no idea it's tied to the mm -hmm. state standards, mm -hmm. but teachers know it. Journey Indiana gives you a view of places to see and visit in Indiana you may never have thought of, people doing interesting things. And when you provide that along with, again, the news, you are creating an entity that people want to keep, not that you're begging them to. So my best advice is to do more of what we are doing to create that sense of community all across Indiana. What does it mean to be a Hoosier? What are the good points? The wonderful loyalty, uh, warmth, and generosity of being a Hoosier. Also, sometimes the parochial nature, the feeling of, well, we don't do it first. We wait and see if someone else does it, and then we'll get on board if it looks good. There are aspects of life in Indiana that great stations should reflect. And if they do that, they will thrive. The local context is what it's all about. Yes. Well, I think during your time, documentaries like the recent one about the campus have appealed so much to your listening and viewing audiences. Beautiful by Design was a, an artistic interpretation of what this campus is and how it was designed, the architecture and lands. But we've done similar things with James Whitcomb Riley, a great poet of Indiana lore, Bill Cook, a documentary on one of the most successful entrepreneurs in Indiana history. We've done a hundred documentaries in these 16 years. A hundred? And they're very interesting in the picture they paint across the spectrum of Indiana experience. A kaleidoscope of our culture, of our local culture. We have a great one coming up I'm really looking forward to in October. The African American Choral Ensemble is going to do a special live-to-tape performance of black church music in a church in Bloomington. And we are doing this for a companion piece to next year's PBS national two-part show Henry Louis Gates is doing a program on the history of the black church in America. Well, he will cover that history, and he'll do it well, but how powerful to follow it with an hour of the church music that has been such an integral part of the black church experience. And I think this will be a treat for all audiences yes, to see. Yes, and so relevant to our local community. Well, you've always been imaginative, Perry, and I... I admire so much not only your administrative school, but your ability to think outside the box. 
Well, the box includes the gardening box, which you have so well filled. We, we appreciate you have done more than a decade of focus on flowers. Oh, it did. we started that in 2004. And, and I have you to thank for allowing me to do that. Because it turned out that there are so many people across this growing section of Indiana who really want to know the things that you know about being a gardener. And well, I think it's been a terrific program for well, us. Well, thank you. It's kind of you to say, but some people, I won't mention their names, say to me, don't be so hard on the deer. <laughs> <laughs> well, they can come to my house where the deer are sleeping in the backyard and then nibbling on my hostas. <laughs> well, you're going to, now that you're retiring, you're going to have much more time to garden, Perry. <laughs> and I look forward to helping you expand your gardening skills. I'll be there for cuttings. This is Moya Andrews, and we've been speaking with Perry Metz. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Thank you, Perry, and thank you for listening. We'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Smiling through Just like you Always do Till the blue skies Drive the dark clouds Far away Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357 Information about profiles including archives of past shows can be found at our website, wfiu.org. That as you saw me go, I was singing this song. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles.